Grace on Fire, episode 97. Warning. Warning. Religious people may get offended. Listening discretion is advised. Go to MyGraceNation.com for safe listening instructions. What's up, Grace Nation? It's Easter week. Bringing you some more high-octane theology. And here we go. And hello, Grace Nation, and welcome to the show. My name is the Reverend Dr. Smitty, a.k.a. the Reverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith, and I am your online pastor. And my goal is to raise ambassadors of grace by cultivating compassion, justice, and love in your home, in your neighborhood, and in the city. And welcome to today's episode. Happy Easter 2019. I hope your Easter was a blessed uh, day. And I pray that you are ministered to by your pastor. I got to tell you, putting Easter in perspective, it is the Super Bowl of the Christian year. I mean, it everything just builds up towards Easter Sunday. And uh, honestly, as a pastor, I can tell you two days after Easter Sunday, I am pretty much wiped out. I'll tell you what happened to me Sunday afternoon. Um, and I'm a pastor of a small church, by the way. Uh, so I can imagine what these huge mega church pastors do. But uh, Sunday afternoon, I went home and just completely crashed. I was completely drained and exhausted. I uh, just had, I was up early, early, early um, before the crack of dawn, uh, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, uh, at the Dunkin' Donuts drive through getting boxes of coffee and donuts for for my leaders and visitors and all that. And, um, you know, that's just something you do as a small church pastor. That's just what you do. Uh, you got to put it in. Uh, you got to put in the effort. And um, I was I was I was exhausted. In fact, um, the stomach flu has been going through my family. And um, so I don't know if maybe that had an effect. I, I, I don't feel I personally didn't feel sick, but just taking care of kids and all that sort of stuff. Anyways, you, you get the idea. Um, but, you know, one of the things we're going to be talking about today on today's episode, uh, which I have titled A Brief History, uh, A Very Brief History of LGBT Plus uh, People. Um, I, I want to say that the reason why I'm going to be talking about this today is simply for this reason. I know that there are people in uh, the world who may even be listening to this podcast today who um, didn't go to church Easter because they didn't feel safe. They wanted to, perhaps they even missed going, but because of a trauma that took place in a congregation, whether they were rejected, uh, their, their kids were rejected or whatever, they did not go to church. And as a result of that, because they did not go to church, they uh, missed out on Easter. And I think that that's something that is, um, I think that it is very, very concerning to me. And it's the reason why we need to ask the question, well, what has happened? How did we get to a place in our society, uh, particularly in the church, particularly in conservative churches, where you have people that just don't feel comfortable going to church? After all, isn't the church supposed to be a place of reconciliation, of healing, of ministry, of grace. Uh, and it's not, right? Unfortunately, it's not. I mean, unfortunately, um, the church is not uh, the safest place in the world. You know, it was interesting. I was I heard this um, uh, pastor. He actually, I, I, you know, us pastors, we get together sometimes, and sometimes it feels like a support group for pastors, and really is not. You know, hi, my name's Jonathan, and I'm a pastor. Um <laughs> But it was actually a guy who came in to speak to a group of pastors that I participate with. And um, anyways, he said this. He said that the church treats its own worse than the world. And what he was talking about were people that have been, um, people that have been, uh, or pastors, I should say, that have been uh, kicked out of their church without severance pay, anything like that. And just, you know, fired and then told to get out of the, the parsonage three hours later. I mean, just, you know, things like that. I mean, that, that actually happened to me. So I, I know what he's saying is true, and it can be devastating to people. So the, the question that we're raising today is, uh, how do we get to that place where people feel marginalized? 
by the church. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a very brief history of mistreatment and marginalization in the church. And we're going to uh, wrestle with that question so that we can understand the society, to better understand the society that we're in. Now, one of the questions you might be asking is, does history really matter? We know where we are today, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to just give you a quote. I think it's a good quote here. It's by George uh, Santayana. And he says, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And I do think that there's some truth to that. I don't think that it's completely accurate. Um, but I do think that if you don't know or understand the dynamics that are happening, you cannot possibly or, or fully understand um, where a person may find themselves today. Here's the other thing that I think is really important. And that's, you know, a lot of straight evangelicals, um, you just simply don't know the story. I didn't know the story. And so when I got, um, when I started doing my doctoral research, one of the things I began to do was just to look at the his this history, and I discovered that there was a very broad history. And so when you better understand the history, you better understand the story, then you can begin to make better sense of the just the journey that many people, I mean, thousands of people have, have been on. Um, but, you know, there's something else I think that's important as well for Christians, and that's to remember that God gave us stories. Uh, there was a book uh, written by Richard Pratt. Richard Pratt uh, was a professor uh, of mine in seminary, but he, he wrote a little book on biblical interpretation called He Gave Us Stories. And one of his main points and one of his main arguments is that stories are among the primary means God uses to reveal his truth to us. In other words... When you open up the Bible, what do you get? You get stories. You get historical narratives. There's something about a power of a story that begins to shape who we are. We are shaped by stories. And so I want to suggest that when we when we desire to better understand the LGBT story, then we can better understand LGBT people. And I think that that is the most critical point in this whole thing that I want to drive home. So as we get in, as we get into the story today, let's, um, we're going to spend the first section here. I'm going to be giving you some details of, of the uh, 20th century, and then we're going to get into the 21st century, and we're going to be talking about uh, some other things. It, it, I apologize right up front. This podcast is going to be way too short to cover all the details, so I'm only going to be covering the biggest things possible, and also this podcast is probably going to be a little bit longer um, than I normally would do because, well, there's a lot to cover. So if we get through all of it in 35 minutes, then I'm doing well, but anyways, hang in there with me, and let's get into today's show, a very brief history of LGBT mistreatment and marginalization in the church. All right, and that brings us to this section today prior to the 20th century, actually to the 20th century. We'll talk a little bit about prior to the 20th century and uh, just to try to understand what happened. So let me begin by telling you a story. One of the very first things that I did when I started doing research was I started looking at the anthropology of um, of, of homosexuality. Now, by the way, I'm going to use technical terms today. So homosexuality as a technical term. All right. Um, so don't get offended by that. There's there's not there's no ill will here intended. All right. But there has been work done in that area called uh, anthropology and one of the and uh, in, in the fields of anthropology. And one of the things that was fascinating to read was the long history of of homosexuality emerging in different cultures. I mean, it goes way back. In fact, if it goes way back even into the ancient times. So so homosexuality has always been uh, a part of the human story. And various cultures and, and, and societies and people groups have all responded and handled handled it in different ways. Um so that, I think, is a largely established fact. However, in Western Europe, particularly in the Germanic tribes, etc., uh, it was very much frowned upon. It was something that was taboo. It was something that was not uh, discussed, etc. And so you don't find uh, strong, strong um, representations 
in the West. Now, I know that there's books out there um, that talk about different uh, manifestations, etc. And and that's true. But in general, when we talk about broad brushstrokes, um, we don't find uh, what we have today, which is this gay consciousness. Oliver O'Donovan calls it a gay consciousness in his book called Church in Crisis. And so prior to the 20th century, one of the ways that the church actually dealt with this was to push men, uh, particularly, into the priesthood or into monks or whatever. Anything that would be con- be considered um, society- uh, societally acceptable, all right, socially acceptable. So, for example, if a gay man uh, could not enter into an open relationship uh, with another man, which, would, again, would have been taboo in the West, um, what would he do? Well, he might pursue vocations like the priesthood, which would emphasize, um, you know, uh, chastity, right? So you have to think through this um, from a perspective of saying that the society, society has wrestled with this for a very long time and has come up with different ways uh, to respond, all right? But then we get into World War II, and World War II began to change some things. World War II you know, World War II was a uh, a trauma to Europe. I mean, it completely renegotiated the map of Europe. Um, Christianity, in my opinion, began to die uh, because people were looking at what happened in the horrors of Nazi Germany, which, by the way, Germany, a Christian nation, um, the horrors of Nazi Germany, how could um, the the cradle of Protestantism result in a in a Hitler? Right? How could that happen? How could um, the the country that is the German people, who were very much the forefront of Protestant Reformation, four hundred and plus years later, result and produce Adolf Hitler? And I think that that is a question that is worth exploring, but not today, right? And so you had people that were profoundly um, impacted by this. During the same time, it's been well uh, documented that Germans would experiment uh, on, on, on gay men, and uh, the result of the traumas, the castrations, all the different things that they did, it very much targeted gay people. Also, and this is um, one of the more fascinating uh, examples, not only was this going on in Germany, but it was also going on in Britain. So Britain was not the, um, you know, the uh, Britain was not this moral leader, uh, even though they were waging a war against Nazi Germany. But in Britain, there were anti-sodomy laws and um, and they were in full effect. And again, one of the things that they did um, to punish uh, gay people was that they would do, particularly gay men, they would actually give them chemical castrations. Now, the big example of this is a man by the name of Alan Turing, who was a British mathematician, and um, he was the one who developed the uh, mechanism that broke the Nazi communication code. And so... The reason why that is so important, because here you have a a man, Alan Turing, who was a uh, a hero, a national hero, but then he was charged um, with anti-sodomy laws because he was a gay man. And as a result, he died uh, 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 about a decade after the war ended. A brilliant, brilliant man. So... In the West, within Germany, within in Britain, and uh, obviously here in America as well, there was these this culture in place that basically said, if you were gay, it was against the law, it was socially taboo, and all of the structures were in place to support that, including religious structures, right? Namely the church. Then something happened. Something happened in America that was a uh, Capernaum revolution. And that Capernaum revolution was the invention of the television. Suddenly, you had a box in your family room that was projecting images with audio uh, into your room of other places. And so by the 1960s, obviously, you had the civil rights movement that was developing in the 50s and the 60s um, in the American South. Desegregation was taking place. As, and, and then what you had in the late 60s was something that um, almost was like a, a powder keg. Obviously, you had the sexual revolution as well. But what happened 
occurred in New York City and Manhattan at a place called the Stonewall Inn. And the Stonewall Inn, uh, which, by the way, I have visited this area uh, in New York, um, the Stonewall Inn uh, near the West Village um, was a place where um, gay men would go uh, to socialize with one another, to meet one another, etc. And um, it was also a place where police would go and frequent to essentially bully gay men. And by the 1960s, tensions began to emerge in this community. And as a result of it, uh, finally one day, uh, some police were um, uh, bullying some gay men. And as a result, a riot took place that ended up uh, taking, uh, that ended up having, happening over several days. And this was what uh, many people will say and argue was the powder keg that launched the gay pride movement. Because with, within several years of that movement, you had uh, gay pride events, you had gay pride uh, marches in some of the, uh, in most of the major U.S. cities as well as in Europe. And the message was by the gay pride movement, come out, come out, come out. And, um, it 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 it, sh- it really did shake the very fabric of our society, very much like the civil rights movement in the American South. Now, what I want to draw your attention to is how television impacted this, because this was a televised event. It wasn't like it occurred in New York and uh, was reported in a newspaper where people read about it. What was taking place was video cameras of gay people. Um, or, or cameras and video of gay people on television were suddenly being broadcasted throughout the country. And as a result of the what, what it did on the psyche of the people was to show others who may have been hiding, who may have been, um, you know, who haven't come out, the term is, you know, come out of the closet, right? They may still have been in the closet. Suddenly, they're hearing the message and being encouraged to come out. And it had this cultural upheaval that uh, rocked uh, it, it rocked uh, the country back then. So this is all taking place in the 1960s and the 1970s. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about um, the development of the come out message in just a moment. So this is all happening. You have this um, this this uh, gay pride movement, this gay pride um, uh, uh, that occurred, and um, then something happened. Then the institutions began to be impacted. And here's how the institutions were impacted. Within the field of psychology as well as psychiatry, uh, studies had been done, uh, significant studies had been done on the area of, of homosexuality. In fact, you can go back and look at it, uh, a number of different uh, studies that go back several different um, decades. Um, so there was already an extensive literature that was being developed. But in the DSM, I want to say it's a DSM-2 and maybe the DSM-3. I don't have my notes on this particular fact, but it's the Di- it's the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM. And uh, today there's a DSM-5, okay? And so this is the official diagnosis manual that uh, psychiatrists and psychologists will use in order to categorize, you know, mental pathology, okay? So that's what this um, this this manual is. And in that DSM-2, I'm really certain it's D- the DSM-2 at that point, homosexuality was listed as a pathology. It was listed as a mental health disease. And so what took place in the early 70s was uh, a movement happened by 1972 within the APA to have that removed. Now, I want you to think about what that means. Suddenly, the scientific community is saying that homosexuality is no longer uh, a mental health problem. Now, what does that run up against? Well, it runs up against the church, which says that that behavior is immoral. And up to that point in the culture, as well as science, not only did it was it immoral, but it was also a mental disease, and so people would approach it that way. Well, because of the uh, the um, the way that the APA works and comes to a decision, that was struck down, and it revolutionized the the approach, the science, uh, the scientific research 
um, in the field of homosexuality, okay? Now remember, I'm saying this again, just as a disclaimer, I'm using that word as a technical term, okay? Um, be very cautious in this word, but I'm using it scientifically right now to talk about the science that is um, represented. So anyways, so something else takes place in the 1970s as well. And in the 1970s, um, the Protestant churches uh, began to issue statements on human sexuality. Now, prior to this, if you look, go back and you look at the major confessions of the church, right? Uh, particularly the Protestant confessions, um, but even going back to the creeds, um, you know, of the, of, the, of the undivided church, what you won't find in any of those documents are statements on human sexuality. Because I want to suggest that it was a foregone conclusion. There was no question about it. Um, the Germanic tribes, the cultures um, considered it socially taboo, and the Bible seemed to reinforce it. So there was never really a question, right? Um, you know, particularly in the Mosaic law, right? If a man sleeps with a man as a woman, um, he is considered unclean. It's an abomination, right? You know, we can all quote all that sort of stuff. But in the 1970s, because of the te because of uh, technology, as well as because of the cultural revolutions that were taking place, the social revolutions, suddenly that all that 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 cultural um, what I want to call undergirding collapsed, and the church issues a statement, and the Episcopal Church, the Methodist Church, and many other churches at that time issued statements essentially affirming the traditional stance which was that human sexuality was was limited in expression to males and females within the confines of marriage between one man and one woman right so those statements came out but immediately because of what was happening culturally that that became uh, that began to be challenged so what you get, what you want to understand here is that much of what we're dealing with today is the outgrowth of the work that took place in the 1960s and the 1970s. Now, I was born in 1976, and so here I am, you know, this little, you know, baby being born and, and not even aware of the world that I was born into, but I was born into this world. And so, and then raised in the church. And so, if you are like me, you're similar age, you were born into this. You, you were not born into a society that had a monolithic view. You were born into a society that was fragmenting all over the place, wrestling with what does it mean to be human, uh, particularly in this area of, human, of sexual identity. So, if we could just move forward, now imagine what happens if you hear the story um, of this movement that says, come out, come out, come out. And I'll imagine that you did. What or what would happen? Well, this is what happened. Unfortunately, because churches were very much a part of the culture. Remember, churches were not just these, you know, grace-filled, evangelical, um, the most important thing is your relationship with God institutions. Churches still at this point were still, you know, centers of communities, particularly small communities. Social um, structures and bonds were, were built around the church. Um, church buildings were used not just for, um, you know, church meetings, but they may have been used for, you know, business meetings or public meetings or whatever. For example, um, my son and I, we had a chance to go visit um, this um uh, pioneer day and it was all about pioneering in the state of florida can you imagine no air conditioning full of mosquitoes um in the state of florida during a summer day uh-uh forget that that's a hard pass but anyways but they did and um so on this settlement that's been you know preserved and reproduced is this old methodist church and we walked into the methodist church and the guy's telling us about this methodist church but then he made this comment he said this church is not just used for worship services, it was also used for community meetings. This is where people would hash out whatever um, the business was for that day. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Um, what would be the largest auditorium um, that would, would fit a lot of people in a community? Well, typically it was the church, right? Church buildings. So um, churches were not just uh, places where the bride of Christ would gather, 
It was also institutional. These were institutions that represented cultural identities. And so what would happen is, is that now you would have uh, kids and young people who would hear the message of the movement, of the gay pride movement, and then they would come out. And then suddenly they found themselves alienated, marginalized. Many of them were kicked out. Many of them were abused. Many of them were um, completely ostracized from their families. Now, if you find yourself in that kind of situation, where are you going to go? At this point, there was uh, there in, within the major cities like Chicago, Manhattan, San Francisco, the l- very large urban areas where you can find a concentration uh, or concentration of um, of gay people. What you would find is a development of gay neighborhoods, and in these gay neighborhoods. You would have people that would, you would have gay people move in. They would find a a house they might like, and then they would move in. And then some of them would become real estate agents. And if you're a real gay real estate agent, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to try to recruit other gay people to move in neighborhoods. And what you find is a development of these gay neighborhoods. There was a, um, a book that was written that documented all of this called the, um, well, I forgot what it was called. The sexual organ. It was called the sexual organization of the city. Fascinating book that focused on this, um, on this development, but in these gay neighborhoods, People would leave and find new identities. They would find other-minded people, other like-minded people. And as they would gather into these uh, into these neighborhoods, they would develop bonds, etc. They would be able to build a life. Um, they would meet other partners, and 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 so much of it would become a way of organizing and meeting other people. Another good example of this, um, it, it's and it's almost cliche. Um, but it's uh, women's softball leagues. Very often, um, women, uh, lesbian women, would go and join softball leagues in order to meet other women, right? And that's what they used. Softball became a means for organizing their communities so that they can meet other women and have relationships, etc. But what's so important for us in this discussion is to understand that the one organizational principle, the one organizational unit, the church, that should have been a place for people to find refuge in 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 their sexuality became the very thing that kicked people out and became the enemy. And, and this happened so much and so often that it was actually documented in this book. And so um, well, all I want to say here is that this is how we, that, that uh, sociologists as well as anthropologists understand these development of gay neighborhoods. Now, I um, I experienced this firsthand. Um, I've experienced this several times now. Um, there's a, a large uh, gay uh, neighborhood here in Orlando um, located downtown, but there's also one um, in uh, Fort Lauderdale named Wilton Manors. And I lived on the edge of Wilton Manors, my family and I, and Wilton Manors was really my first experience and exposure into a gay neighborhood. And um, I'll never forget it because there was there's this um, store there called Out of the Closet, you know, which was a, a thrift store, and they also offered free HIV testing. And um, and then there was another um, there was a, a coffee shop called Java Boys, and I mean you could you could get the idea that there was a definitely subculture here, uh, a gay subculture within Wilton Manors. But Wilton Manors was interesting because. It actually is an incorporated gay community. That's how it is known in uh, Fort Lauderdale area. It's its own municipality right adjacent to Wilton Manors. And if you live down there, you'll, you know, you, you come uh, with firsthand experience um, uh, with Wilton Manors. And, and I mean, it's right there uh, for you. So needless to say, um, what you see here developing is this um, this movement, this subculture within North America, where you have gay neighborhoods developing, growing, uh, growing in, in in political power as well, uh, in in economical power, and beginning to exert an influence on the culture. Now, it's a slow influence, but it's definitely there. Um, there's a story; it's an anecdote. I've actually not researched this, um, so I don't know exactly the full facts of the story but it is an anecdote and it's one that i've heard repeated by different groups of people and that is is that there was a um uh, a meeting that took place 
somewhere i i want to say it was like in north carolina or somewhere but but it was a group of, of gay people that met together and what they were determined to do was to move towards the normalization um that move towards the normalization of lgbt people um uh in and i think a better way of saying this move to the normalization of human of gay human sexuality in our culture and the reason why that was so important is because it was considered still even by the 70s and even the 80s, and I would even argue by the 90s as well. That's when I came of age in high school, etc. Um, you know, it I, it was still considered, you know, a pariah. It was still considered sort of on the edge and, and extreme, and um, but it was moving quickly and shifting quickly. So um, these neighborhoods were so critical and so important. Um, for the development um, of what I'm calling gay consciousness uh, in the West. And so um, there's one final thing, though, that I think is also important, because really when you're talking about a people group and a development of a people group, one of the things you also want to look at is their spirituality and their spiritual development. Now, prior again, prior to uh, the 20th century, there was a movement within Christianity called liberal Christianity, and it, and and again, it comes out of Germany. So Germany is the uh, the 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 cradle of the Protestant Reformation. It also became the cradle of liberal Christianity, and liberal Christianity was very different than Orthodox Christianity, and um, it, it had its own uh, development of thought. And uh, by the twentieth century. Liberal Christianity is is fully developed in many of the different seminaries, um, but yet you still had a largely conservative base within most of the mainline Protestant denominations, which is why you saw the decision made in the 1970s. But when uh, the gay pride movement developed, suddenly what you find is uh, um, it was suddenly is the wrong word. What you find is a movement and actually a pioneer of a de new denomination that emerges. Now, America is good for creating denominations, by the way. America has full of homegrown denominations. Um, any of the Church of God movements that happened in the Midwest, they're all homegrown American. Seventh-day Adventist, homegrown American. I mean, you know, we Americans, Mormons, I mean, we could just create all kinds of denominations, um, you know. And so this was another one called the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Community Church a denomination, MCC. And this particular uh, Protestant group was really the first gay Protestant denomination that came out of California. And um, what it did, it spread, of course, and um, it was a church founded uh, for gay people. Now, if you you know were straight, you were still invited, but it was a welcoming and joyful place where people could come and know God. But what it actually did was it actually gave a place for liberal theology, liberal Christian theology, to really settle in and to begin to explore practically the implications of its theological systems. And so you have something called gay theology or queer theology developing in all of this, and then that began to emerge into the academic circles as well as um, the major Protestant denominations, the Episcopal Church, etc., and as a result of all of this, you find um, seminary professors uh, beginning to teach ethics that may have been contrary to the uh, Christian, uh, the historic Christian faith. And all of this is now in the process of working in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And all of that begins to come to a head by the 2000s. And that's where we're going to take a break and uh got a short message for you and then we will come right back Hey there, this is Jonathan again, and perhaps you've noticed I'm pretty passionate about declaring and demonstrating the liberating power of Jesus Christ to an exhausted world. 
And one of the ways that I do this is by working with parents and church leaders on how to better love LGBTQ people and families in the local church. You know, unfortunately, the church doesn't have the best track record when it comes to loving LGBT plus people well. And as a result, sometimes they can feel rejected or marginalized from those who they really need the most, their families and congregations. But I have good news. It doesn't have to be this way. We can change the status quo. God's word gives guidelines and principles that pave a way forward for a gospel-centered approach to loving LGBTQ plus people and families. You know, I believe the message of the Bible is clear. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. But let's face it, sometimes conservative Christians struggle with how to live out this truth in everyday life. And as a result, there seems to be a lot of confusion on how to apply the gospel to our gay friends or family members. Well, to help meet this challenge, I have developed a program titled Remission, Cultivating Side B Allies in the Church. In this program, I teach individuals or groups how to better love LGBTQ plus people and families in the church without compromising your beliefs and without further marginalizing gay people. You know, it won't answer all the questions, but it will give you the tools needed to love gay people well. If you are interested in learning more, then please visit MyGraceNation.com to contact me, and I would love the opportunity to chat. Again, that's MyGraceNation.com. And that brings us back into part two of this. And we're looking at the history um, of marginalization and mistreatment in the church. And, you know, and so I hope that first section, I know it was a long section here, but I hope what that first section did was it just laid the foundation of all that transpired. Because what I'm going to tell you is that from the 1970s, really to the 2000s, this 30 year period of time, was a time of radical, radical conflict. And it was a conflict, it was a shifting that took place um, within the church, with the, um, uh, specifically with evangelicals, within society at large, with wrestling and understanding uh, what it means to be gay, what it means to be straight, what it means to be lesbian. There was new identities that began to emerge, you know, getting down the list known as, you know, transgender, uh, queer, ally, um, pansexual, transsexual, all those sorts of things. It really began to explode as we developed and understood that the fixed binary of male and female was was not nearly not nearly as as rock solid as we once believed and so as a result of this is as a christian theologian for example what do you make out of all of this and honestly it would be far easier it would be far easier if the bible just didn't speak to it if there wasn't six or seven verses in the bible that seemed to be so explicit in its condemnation and um uh, 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 and so you 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 look at this and you begin to realize and recognize that there's just a a, a, a a complexity here that I think that we don't fully understand and so as I said we had this um uh, you know this history here of people um, being encouraged to come out but being rejected by the church as a result marginalization was taking place people were being kicked out of their homes. Uh, there was bullying, all sorts of things that were, were taking place in society. Uh, you know, kids, the, the, the rate of teenage suicide uh, among LGBT teens was eight times higher than that of straight teens. And so um, how does the church respond? Well, in the early 80s, what would you do? Well, in the early 80s, because there wasn't a, uh, a clear development of Christian uh, research, um, particularly uh, using psychology. Now, remember something here. This is, you know, if even if you've spent any time in psychological um, uh, circles, all right. If you've studied psychology, the fields of psychology, even the fields of psychology in the '70s and the '80s was undergoing its own revolutions. All right, it was all these different 
uh, schools of thought were taking place and and uh, emerging. So it wasn't as if we could get a clear consensus from the scientific community as to what may be happening. So in the early 80s, uh, a psychologist by the name of Joseph Nicolosi, he developed something called the ex-gay movement or reparative therapy. And the whole idea was simple. It was help and hope for people with, you know, unwanted same-sex attraction. And what he essentially argued was if you understood certain principles and of sexuality and dealt with certain things in your past and uh, understood the Lord Jesus Christ and finding your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, that those feelings within would subside and diminish and you could go on and live a straight life. And for some people, it worked. But... The science was shaky. It was never really developed on, there was never really good scientific principles. And unfortunately, there was, um, for for every person that said that they were ex-gay, there was also ex-ex-gays. And um, the actual research when it was done later, showed that not that the feelings that they had, the, the inclinations, well, most of the time they didn't really diminish. And so you had criticisms from the scientific community emerging. You even had stories of trauma that people were being forced to go into this, um, either by parents of teenagers, et cetera. And as a result, it really, the ex-gay movement developed a black eye. And... Um, even later on, then, uh, by the late 90s into the early 2000s, you had researchers like Warren Throckmorton as well as uh, Mark Yarhouse, uh, who these are now evangelical Christian psychologists, essentially saying that many of that much of what the ex-gay movement was was saying and doing was not was scientifically invalid. So. Then, well, what do you do, right? If you're a Christian, suddenly the pre- the prevailing paradigm that you have um, of the ex-gay movement, which, by the way, I remember the Genesis movement in the 90s. Um, I remember hearing stories about this thing. Um, suddenly, you know, it, it's, its basic claims are being uh, challenged. And, you know, and, and, and LGBT people are saying it's not fair. It's, you know, it's this, that, and the other. Plus, you had in the 90s uh, all of the research that came out that said it was essentially genetic, uh, which, by the way, that research um, is from later on, at the end, that became became debunked. So you, you have all of this, this stuff, this conversation that's taking place in the scientific community, in the academic community, as well as in the theological community. And then you have teenagers, right, who are just trying to figure all this out. And what do you do? What do you do? Now, all of this is happening. And the sh- culture shifts. Because you have this thing called the cultural war, right? And in the cultural war, um, you had people trying to defend this Christian nation. The, the, you know, you had their religious right. And um, you had all the rhetoric that was coming out. And very often, the religious right would uh, target LGBT people as the icons of the problems in the nation. Never really dealing with uh, the issues of pornography and all the others. And so many of these religious right leaders would come out and then they would have their own moral fallings, their moral failures. And then the divorce rate, you know, between Christians and non-Christians was argued that it was no different. And then you had um, the, the pornography use and then pornography came out. The statistics showed that Christians dealt with it as much as, as non-Christians. And the major result of it all was that the church began to be perceived as hating gay people and hypocritical. And it was a huge black eye against the church. And so in the attempt to reconcile all of that, then theologians begin to go back to work again, and, and, and there became more research and biblical studies, etc. And as a result of it, what we have today is not even just a right or a left, but what you have is a fractured view of human sexuality and people trying to wrestle with all of it. And what does it even mean? And these are very important questions to, to, to wrestle through. 
Even more, you have mainline Protestant churches that began to split and reversing their positions on human sexuality. Um, the Episcopal Church is perhaps the most um, familiar to me because uh, working in the Anglican Church, I have watched the Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church. I've seen the Anglican Communion uh, worldwide divide over this whole issue. In fact, in 2008, there was a, um, a, a statement that was released called the Jerusalem Declaration that explicitly um, taught and stated that human sexuality um, was uh, to be expressed between a man and a woman in the bonds of marriage. But then you also had just recently this year, the Methodist Church that has a huge internal division because there was a movement within the Methodist Church uh, to reverse its position, and yet the traditionalists won, but not because of North Americans, but because of the global Methodists um, that are much more conservative. And so you you find that even within the Methodist Church and the Episcopal Church and other uh, mainline Protestant denominations, Presbyterian Church USA, etc., that there is this movement and, and fracture within the church. And it all boils down to one single issue. Does God bless same-sex unions, gay unions? Regardless of all the other things, that's what it seems to boil down to. And if you come on down on a traditional stance, then you're going to be labeled as a hater, right? If you come down on a liberal stance, Conservatives are going to label you as a heretic. And caught in the middle is the person trying to wrestle and understand their human sexuality and their relationship with the Lord. And I got to tell you this, that as I think about this, and I think about this history, and I think about the people, and I think about the risks and the in in, in the marginalization, and and now you could even argue that um you know that the traditional orthodox position is becoming the marginalized position, and I don't want to get into that because that gets into all kinds of social issues, et cetera, and I don't I don't think that it's true, but I do think that when we look at where we are today, the the decision by the gay community to work towards normalizing. Um, we'll just use this phrase, but I'm just using it very loosely, normalizing um, gay identity, okay? That movement has been very successful because we see it in our television commercials. We see it um, in, in relationships on, you know, depicted on television. I, I recently just wrapped up a, um, a show, uh, uh, a series on Star Trek. I love Star Trek, and I love the latest uh, edition of Star Trek Discovery. But in that... Um, in that series featured a, a, a gay relationship between a medical doctor and one of the other people. And it was a featured and prominent part of the narrative of Star Trek. Now, Star Trek has always pushed the bounds socially, um, which was which is part of why Star Trek has been so popular. But my point is saying all of this is that what you see is this normalization um, of non-bear. I think a really a, a correct way of saying is you're seeing a normalization of non-binary human sexual identities, meaning that people are now describing themselves in all kinds of ways and uh, in all kinds of, of relationships and seem to be free to explore all of these. And yet you still have, as a result of this, the church wrestling with how to apply the Bible standards in our modern world. You know, as I think about this, I want to give you a couple of takeaways because I think that uh, we've we've talked about this enough, and I think that you get the general sense of what I'm just simply trying to lay out today. And if you have questions, listen. And let me just say this: if I've mess if I've misspoke on any detail, uh, please forgive me um, because I'm not perfect and I don't know the full history, and and it's impossible to do it. But when I look at the history of this, there's a couple of things that um, I think we need to understand. And the very first thing is this, is that there has been a long history in the West, particularly America, that has been wrestling with this question on human sexuality. This question has been going on in this country publicly for at least 50 years, if not longer. And uh, there are thousands of journal articles in research on this subject. Thousands, literally Thousands. I, th I think the last time I, I counted that there was over 2,500 articles on this subject. 
alone in the scientific journals. Um, and there's probably more today because that research that I did was uh, 10 years ago. Um, the second thing I want to say is this, is that it's far more complicated than we imagined. You're not going to go and reverse anything. Uh, and I'm speaking to, you know, straight evangelical Christians here. You know, don't think that just because you get up and say you want to change the culture, you're going to change anything. You're not going to change nothing. That's not even the point. I don't want to even say that's even the goal at this point. I want to say suggest that the goal then, the third, is that there are consequences to how we respond, and therefore our goal needs to love people well. That's what Christ called us to do. And that's what I say there is still a need for the gospel. I dare say that this is what's going to happen in, in, in our culture in the next 10 years. And, and I would say we're close to it, but I think we're probably a generation away. You know, 60, 70 years ago, maybe not even that long, but maybe 60 years ago, it was taboo to get a divorce. Absolutely taboo. And if you got a divorce and you were a minister, you most likely would never be able to minister again. Today, divorce is so common that young people don't even get married. I have a feeling that what's going to take place in the church within two generations is that the generation that grew up came of age before the 1960s and maybe came of age in the, in the 60s and maybe the 70s and 80s. Once that generation passes, those who are coming up in age like I did of the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, that that generation is going to look at this and just say, hey, it's just like divorce. And yet they're going to have to wrestle with what the Bible teaches. Just like we have to wrestle with what the Bible teaches on divorce, we have to wrestle with what it teaches on human sexuality. And so what I think and my great hope is, is that we move past the issues of marginalization, ostracization, and trauma, and to try to wrestle through that. But we're also going to have to come up with new winsome ways on how we express and teach what the Bible actually says about human sexuality, just like we say about divorce. You know, I was reading in Malachi today that God hates divorce. Now, that's a really powerful thing, right? I said last week that God doesn't hate people, and I do, I do believe that's true. But I do think that he hates the actions that we get engaged in. And when we look at human sexuality and we look at the very strong language that we find within the Bible on human sexuality, it's very difficult to conclude, at least in my opinion, that we can just simply ignore it. I think we have to wrestle through it. And so those are massively important questions that we must deal with and work through. But I also want to suggest something else, that the key to all of this is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you knew I would say that, right? It's understanding the grace of our Lord, equalizing us all. And so now I hope that this was helpful to you. And I pray that it was. So receive this blessing. May the grace, the love, and the fellowship of God be with you always. To Grace on Fire, a Verve Creative Production. For show notes, links, and more, please visit mygracenation.com.